everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. This week, I'll be talking with Joseph, a musician who uses his art to express his personal experiences growing up biracial in Quebec, Canada. We'll talk about his music, and especially his lyrics, and how broader issues of social justice are reflected and expressed in individual personal experiences. So welcome, Joseph, and thanks for giving me the time today to have a conversation with you. Thanks for having me. I have been friends with you on Facebook for a very long time. I've followed your posts, and I mostly noticed that you're living in Canada, so you have sort of an outside-the-U.S. perspective, although very close by, like neighboring country. One of the things that I noticed was that you would chime in sometimes on some of the things that you were seeing in U.S. politics. So you had a lot of investment, I guess, in what was happening in the neighboring country and the impact that it also had on Canada, seeing some of the trends here sort of leaching into Canadian attitudes as well. And so you would post about some of those things. Can you talk a little bit about some of what you saw that was disturbing to you? I first got interested in U.S. politics back when George W. Bush was president. When, when he was elected, my interest was as far as, uh, oh, another Bush, that's interesting. But uh, I had a colleague, his sister lived in the States, and her husband was in the army. And uh, after 9-11 happened, and uh, they went into Iraq, he was very much invested in the news because he was worried about his brother-in-law. So that, that was like, he just was talking about it all the time. He was just checking the news all the time at the office. Just in having discussions with him, it got me interested. And then I started paying pretty close attention and been paying attention to it ever since. And I've just been fascinated by it because U.S. politics, I guess, compared to, to how, how things are here, it's, it's a lot more entertaining just because there's a lot more extreme positions. And when you say entertaining, I mean, I don't want people to think that you take it lightly because you do get involved in the conversations. You do engage on my wall, especially yes. uh, now and then. And you have very strong opinions on some of the things that you're seeing, um, especially the social justice issues. And I did notice that you have especially strong opinions about some of the things you're seeing with the BLM movement. Yes. And that, well, that movement is here in Canada too. And we have Black Lives Matter organizations here as well. First of all, I should say, I, maybe I, it was a poor choice of words to say more entertaining, right? I don't mean to make light of it at all. I guess what I mean is it's, there's a lot more optics about it. It's something that catches my attention. Like I, I really don't listen to very many press conferences because it's kind of boring. One day uh, I saw a post on your wall and it had to do with I guess, a musical endeavor that you were involved with, and I didn't realize that you are a musician. I went to the link and I listened to some of your music, and I was actually surprised because I was really impressed with what I heard, and that's pretty rare for me. Thank you. I appreciate that. My musical education, it's kind of light. I took guitar lessons for a couple of years when I was was a child, I guess between 11 and 12, when I took piano lessons for a few years. My musical theory is pretty weak. Everything about the way I play music or record music or write is just from the experience of actually doing it. Uh, and it's less, uh, less to do with any type of formal education. It probably came from the church because uh, I grew up in the church as a musician. So uh, every Sunday I was either playing drums or bass or guitar or singing. That's probably where I got my main training. You know, when I became a teenager, I started uh, joining different bands and playing shows. And I've just been doing that ever since, uh, ever since I was a child. The first band I was in, I think I started when I was 12, and uh, everybody else was between 18 and 20. But I, because I was able to play the guitar pretty well, I was able to be in that band. So, you know, I, I've had experience playing live shows and, 
playing different styles of music ever since I was, I was a kid. I just use what I learn as I go along. The last band that I was in, I was in it for about six years. I just left just before the pandemic hit. Uh, that was a jazz band. Even though I don't have very strong jazz chops, I'm able to navigate a little bit within the jazz framework. And within that band, even though it was a jazz band, I kind of introduced the pop sensibilities to it because of the simplicity of my playing. But playing with them, you know, expanded my knowledge. So it helped me to become better. I learned more chords and learn how to play different scales. Guitar is my main instrument and bass also. I'm probably just as good on bass as I am on guitar. And then I can play a little bit of piano. I play drums. I'm, I'm the type of musician that if you put something in front of me, I can, I can probably figure out how to make music from it. You know, you just find out where uh, each note is relative to the other notes. And then you just kind of you adjust your brain and you, you can work with that. Even though I might not be skilled on a whole bunch of instruments, I can probably be a, like a jack of all trades, master of none. And like for the type of music that I like to write and produce, you know, that allows me to, to set the rhythm tracks to all my songs, you know, on my own. And I don't really need to hire a band to do those things. I can just do it all myself. And you also sing. Yes, I sing too. Can you talk a little bit about what inspires you to make your music? The piano lessons and the guitar lessons, I really didn't enjoy those. And uh, I wasn't a good student. You know, I had lessons I was supposed to do on the piano and pieces that I was supposed to learn, but I, I would actually spend my time creating and just making up my own tune and trying things that interested me more. So yeah, I, I really wasn't a very great student. And probably even before I, I had a, any musical training at all, I think I would probably sing to myself, you know, as I'm playing with my toys and make up little melodies and tunes and chants. And I guess that just stuck with my personality. And as I learned some musical languages, uh, some ways of expressing myself with musical instruments, I was able to translate that and expand my vocabulary and write tunes and write hooks. Did you have anyone in your life that you feel was an inspiration? Yeah, my father was the earliest and most encouraging person when it came to my music. I think I was about 10 or 11. I was watching The Simpsons. One of the characters on the show plays the saxophone. And there was one episode where they featured her saxophone playing. And she met this guy that was a busker that plays saxophone out in the street. She became friends with this guy and he's like a jazzy player. And uh, I don't know what it was, but it was something about that episode that made me interested in the saxophone when I was a kid. So I told my parents, uh, I really would like to learn how to play the saxophone. And my father, he had been playing guitar since he was a kid as well. And he had an old acoustic that he kept in, uh, in his closet. It hadn't been out in years. And he said, well, look, if you want to play the saxophone, let's check to see if you have some kind of musical skill and ability. And uh, let me pull out this guitar. I'll give you a book. And if you can kind of make progress and show some discipline and like learn this little piece or learn, learn these uh, exercises that I've given you, then we'll consider getting you a saxophone. I took his book and I consumed it and I, I learned everything like right away. I came back to him probably within the next week and showed him everything that he asked me to learn. And he said, wow, oh, I didn't expect you to learn it so quick. Let's see what we can do about finding a, a saxophone or, or saving up for one. By that point, I'd already invested a little bit in the guitar and I, I enjoyed it. So I said, never mind, I'll, I'd rather just continue learning the guitar. So that's, <laughs> he didn't have to dish out for a saxophone. I got to learn on his guitar. And then eventually he bought me my own acoustic guitar and he pulled his out and he started playing in church. And then he got me involved. That's how it began for me. When I first started, I was so young. I think it was 11 when I did my first piece. And it was uh, uh, Ludwig van Beethoven's Joyful, Joyful. And uh, my father played the rhythm section and I just played the lead part. And it was very simple. And I uh, got a lot of nice feedback for that because when you see a, a little kid playing something like fairly well, you know, people tend to put a lot more attention on that, you know? Oh, absolutely. But I did want to talk about the set of songs that I did here after I went and checked out your stuff online. 
what you heard was a, an album that I had put out before the pandemic called Silverback. Every song I listen to, and I think I listen to every single one, there's not a single love song in that entire set. Yeah. <laughs> My ex-wife and a couple of people I dated have noted that I don't let write very many love songs either. <laughs> there was one song where I, I had to listen to it a few times because it didn't really dawn on me what it was about. These lyrics are very personal lyrics. And so pulling meaning out of them wasn't the simplest thing in the world for somebody sitting outside because I don't know the specific situations that these lyrics are describing. But I do remember specifically in one instance, me listening to the song and saying, this sounds like a song about appropriation. This sounds like the idea of appropriating that we see a lot of times where privileged communities will appropriate something from a marginalized group and then go on to use it in a privileged way where they get a lot of credit or make a lot of money from it, where the person that actually produced it is left out in the cold, is not getting the credit. And your response was, hey, that's not quite what it was about. And yet when you started to talk about the actual specific incident, it really was about appropriating someone else's work. You're right about that. First of all, that phenomenon is something that bothers me and, and I'm very critical of it. You know, even some of my favorite bands in the rock genre are guilty of that. Yeah, it, it's true that that song came from, uh, I guess, a form of appropriation, but it was a lot lighter in tone when I wrote it because it, it really came from a, a bit of a feud that I had with a, another fellow musician here in Montreal. He's another uh, person who does... I don't know if he still does now. I haven't spoken to him in about 12 years. But he wrote um, wrote his own music and he had his own recording studio at home. And he, he did a lot of the same kind of things that I did, where he you know he, he played his own drums and guitar part and, uh, and sang his own vocals. He, he's a more of a straight rocker. But then I noticed that like some of the stuff that I was putting out, which was in those days, it was a little bit more gospel influence, that he started copying ideas that, I, that, that came from songs that I wrote. And then I realized like, oh, look, he's playing his bass a little bit like the way I play mine on this new track. And then uh, it was a couple of times that it was so obvious that I put out a song to test it. And I wrote this song calling him out saying, I, I hear you stealing my stuff. <laughs> and this was the song Osmosis. Yeah. And, and the funny thing about that one is that after I put that song out, like a few weeks later, he, he put out a tune that used a lot of the, a lot of the same techniques that I used in osmosis. In, like, so right, in right, right over his head. It went right over his head. He didn't know what the song was about at all. And he, and he heard my bass line. He was like, oh, okay, well, he put out something like that. I'm going to try to take his bass line and make it better or make it mine. Or whatever. So it was, it was playful. And I, I, re I really wasn't upset about him doing that because it, it wasn't, he wasn't stealing my songs. He was just, I put out a funky bass line and all of a sudden he, his song had to have a funky bass line. It, it, was just, it was just as simple as that. broad standpoint, it absolutely can apply to forms of appropriation that are involved in social justice. I don't know if I do it as much now, but I usually try to, in those days at least, try to put a bit of a message in there or something, some kind of nugget that's worth worthwhile, besides like being something silly. So I might have, you know, like I have lines like, uh, don't try to be, but just be, about being authentic, you know, not trying to be unique by copying other people, but by just being your individual self. 
art in general, especially in music, is up for interpretation. You know, it was influenced by a very specific scenario, and I had written it about something specifically personal to me. I usually try to write lyrics in a way that an audience can listen to it and gather, you know, from their own personal experiences and lives that it can they can relate to it somehow, even though they didn't live my direct experience. I wanted to talk about one of the songs called "When It's Necessary." In my notes, I had that this song is about struggle, survival, denial, privilege, looking the other way, and a willingness to fight versus a desire to do so, which is what I think I found most interesting about it. Can we talk a little bit about that song? I like the tune. Um, I like the way I produced it musically. That one had to do with my ex-wife. And I wrote that at the beginning of the pandemic. And this is one of the areas where when you're co-parenting with somebody uh, in a different home, who's got a different values system than you do. And there are some challenges there. And at the beginning of this pandemic, she was kind of of the skeptical persuasion about how serious uh, COVID-19 was. And uh, we were having some serious conflict about, you know, whether or not we should take our, our children out of the sports until this thing rolls over. And, you know, she was of the mind of like, no, keep, keep on sending them to soccer practice. And, you know, I had some big anxiety about that. asthma too so I was also worried that well they go and catch it at the practice they could bring it home to me and maybe they don't have a dad you know in the next couple of weeks so I you know we had a, we had some conflicts about that eventually uh, I think I had her call there's a government service we uh, info service where you can call them up and ask questions about about health and what you should do like you know like you have 911 for emergencies and this is 811 for info like it's not necessarily an emergency but you can find out like i don't know i i swallowed some mercury like what do i do <laughs> you know you know i said look you're, you're disagreeing with me and we can't find common ground here but why don't you just call the info info santé it's french why don't you call that place and and ask the same questions that i asked Let, let's base our decisions on on what they tell you so she called them and they set, set it straight for her. And then we decided to take our kids out, out of soccer and dance. For me, it kind of felt like it was a bit of a, a personal victory, you know, in co-parenting between uh, my ex and I. Like it, I've always had the feeling that every, every time we have a, a conflict involving raising our kids, which isn't often, but I get the, the feeling like I'm the one that's always losing. Like I'm always the one that has to make the compromise. And in this one case, it felt like, hey, I have my first win. <laughs> <laughs> and that song was pretty much about that. <laughs> and I feel, you know, I feel happy that my kids are safe. So that song was really, it, it was a lot of me venting about just what I felt like, you know, my situation was, or, or my my role was in this uh, co-parenting situation. <laughs> you had one song that I wrote down that I interpreted as denial and a need for support. It was the song Immersion. And I was wondering if we could have a little chat about what you were intending with that song. Immersion, that one is definitely a, a social justice song. But uh, I guess what, what I didn't like about it is just how cheesy it was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, if I play that song with just an acoustic guitar, I feel like I get away with it all right. But the way I did it just felt too cute for what the lyrical content was which is probably why I didn't like it so much. 
It had a lot of power or impact to it. It was sort of fun, but the lyrics are very aggressive. Yeah, that song was a very direct personal ex- uh, about personal experiences, about just growing up uh, a person of color in predominantly white society. And it goes back to like my first experience like when we first moved to Quebec. I come from uh, Ottawa, Ontario, and I moved here when I was about seven or eight. Uh, and before moving here, my memories are very foggy. There was racist experiences that I had in Ottawa. I'm just too young to remember them, I guess. But I remember when we moved to Quebec, it it struck me, you know. And I guess it's probably probably has something to do with a bit of the the cultural differences here too. People are more like in Quebec, the francophone people. Not everybody, but culturally, they're a lot more like Trump supporters, I guess. The, there's less taboo about saying you know racially insensitive things. Whereas uh, I find the uh, anglophone people, they make the mis- like mistakes all the time too, but they're a little bit more like, don't say that when the, you know, our black friend is here kind of thing. You know what I mean? In Quebec, the, the, you, you'll feel like, wait, are we still, is it 1950? <laughs> And my mother is black and she comes from Barbados and my father is German. My mother's attitude, and I guess it's, it comes from being the type of Christian woman that she is. She believes that it's her role to submit to her husband. Her attitude kind of has always reflected his attitude about those kind of things. I guess they, the race was trying, they tried to make it a non-issue. I guess they tried to, to raise my brother and myself to be colorblind, but it didn't work for me. My brother kind of him and I had an interesting talk a few months ago, and he, you know, he experiences racism in all the same ways that I do. He sees things differently than I do, I guess. His line of thinking is more along the lines of my father. It basically is, it's an interracial couple. There's a privilege dynamic there, not only with just, you know, my dad being the man, but also with him being white. So the, the head of our household was a white male. You know, all the, the racial blind spots and that, that someone can have, he, he had a lot of those. You know, the home just wasn't a safe space really for talking about racialized experiences because you have somebody whose fragility makes it very uncomfortable for them to, uh, to talk about it. And they want to find the solution right away and kind of wrap up the conversation and like think that everything's been solved. That's not really how it worked. Growing up, I internalized a lot of that, which is probably why now as a, as a 40-year-old man, I'm venting all sorts of stuff you know I'm, I'm trying to pull back on it but you know i was online all the time sharing my thing my thoughts and sharing my experiences a whole youth like childhood up until my mid-20s of just kind of repressing it all and, and uh, never talking about those things when we moved to quebec first elementary school i went to had a bully and this guy was relentless like he he terrorized me in the schoolyard he literally sought me out it would be a recess and i would go try to find a, a space to play by myself and this guy would he would find me and point at me and and I was terrified of this guy one of the first things that I remember from him was that he would bully me and hurt me and it was one time where he had a friend that was with him after they were picking on me he asked me he said how long does it take your your mother to take a shit and I wasn't answering him and he goes it takes nine months 
you know, which is trying to basically say that black women poop their babies out. Yeah. I can't imagine what it was like to experience it. It's difficult to even hear it. That stuck with me. I guess, you know, I mean, I was seven, seven or eight at the time. I guess that'll never leave me. That experience was just so, as much as he terrified me and as much as like his bullying and the physical stuff was an issue, that was like the thing that was like a dagger to the heart. Yeah, you've heard of like your, your mama jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Something about uh, someone attacking, you know, your mother or your parents, the people that you're, you're emotionally closest to that just gets to you. So it was, it wasn't just, it wasn't me that he was picking on. It was my mom. It, it made me feel even more helpless. Like this guy doesn't even have respect for my mother. Yeah. And just so overtly racist. Yeah. And I don't even know if he heard that joke somewhere and, and shared it or if he came up with it on his own, but it was for a, an elementary school kid. That was pretty serious, uh, <laughs> serious joke. I mean, by the time I heard that comment, I was already in the habit of just keeping everything to myself and internalizing everything by that stage. So I didn't share the name of that with my parents. And they only became aware of this bully after uh, he hurt me pretty bad one day. I got sent to the school nurse and, uh, and my parents got called in. And then the jig was kind of up. They, you know, they had to ask me, like, what happened? Like, how did, because uh, it's the same guy, actually. He, he came and he found me. And, you know, what he used to do, he would spot me in the schoolyard and point at me. And I would kind of freeze like a deer in the headlights. And then he would run towards me. And then I'd have a second to react and panic. But when I freeze, like, it delayed me. He would always catch up to me. So this one time I ran and I ran towards the, uh, the doors of the school. I was going to try to go inside. And uh, he caught up to me before and he just grabbed me and smashed my head against the brick wall. And I had a concussion from that. And I ended up waking up in the nurse's lounge. Office. The, yeah, yeah, nurse's, nurse's office. office. And uh, my parents got called in and then they had to, they had inquired what happened and I explained. And then it became a thing, you know, where they, they had to confront the bully. And that's when I told them about that kind of thing. But up until the authorities at school would call my parents and I would never tell them anything. I'd just keep it to myself. I don't really know the reasons why in, like in those days I kept everything to myself, but I do know that later on when I talked about racialized experiences, I, it made my father very uncomfortable and he would he'd either try to get me to see the bright side of things or to see how it's not as bad as I'm making it up to be, or he would try to solve it. It was something that he could never, he was never in the position to solve. And the times when he uh, tried to get me to see it differently, it just felt like, okay, he's not hearing me or he doesn't see it or he doesn't want to know. So that discouraged me further from sharing with them. My brother and I just kind of internalized our racist experiences and grew up thinking like that's just part of part of our lot. That's just what that's just something that we have to deal with. There's no sense uh, making any noise about it. Do you ever wonder how different life might have been had you been able to share this in the home, or had you had a situation that was a safe space to talk about these issues? It probably would have been a, a lot more of a healthy environment for me to be able to feel some solidarity with some with someone, you know. I, I didn't really feel that with my mom because she downplayed her own experiences too. Like she wasn't in the habit of talking about her racist experiences either. And the few times that her experience, an experience she had was so extreme that she would talk about it. It was always like when it was kind of like, oh, that's like, that's really over, you know, but she'd never talk about any microaggressions or just like at the end of her day, going to the hospital and just all the, what is it? Death by a thousand cuts, all those cuts. Sure. Came home at the end of the day, and, and she didn't have a husband that she can talk about that kind of stuff to either. I guess I took my cues from her. 
a lot of times I will hear, hey, we adopted children of color or Black children. I've even seen it extend to, I have Black grandchildren, right? So in other words, one of my children married someone who is Black, who then they had children, and somehow I score anti-racist points for that. Well, what you're talking about there is is a description of my uh, my father's side of the family. My brother and myself and my mom, I guess, give them the pass <laughs> in their minds, at least, to carry on, you know, um, never changing and feeling like, well, you know, you can't call me a racist. I got a, like a black nephew and a black sister-in-law. If you had advice for interracial families, what would you say? This is like, it's very dear to my heart, this <laughs> particular topic. My advice would be that the, the person in the position of privilege in, in that relationship, in, if it's an interracial family, as in a biracial couple that has children, they need to be made aware of the privilege that they have. They basically need to understand what it means to be an ally. If they don't understand that, they're not going to be equipped to give their, their child of color what they need. Unfortunately, that's just too common because it's, uh, it's too common that people don't, don't realize that there's work that they have to do on their side. What would you be telling your own father? What would you be saying as far as here's some of the, the resources or some of the things that you can do? What would you advise as far as learning what that means to be an ally, learning what it means to be there for a child in a context of a racist society? The first thing would be for him to acknowledge that he has privilege because of his skin color. I think to this day, I don't think he acknowledges that. One caveat is a few weeks ago, I was on a, a, a call with him and my mom, and I think I might have successfully, with the help of my mother, to understand what we mean when we say that he's got privilege, because his response to that has always been to talk about all his struggles and how hard he's had to work and all, not recognizing that, okay, yes, you had to do all those things, but you got to do all those things with white skin. You didn't have the extra burden of having black skin, and uh, and it's always been hard to get that message through, and I, I think it might have recently. but. If I could go back in time and, you know, visit my dad as an adult and say, um, give him some advice. One, you know, learn what privilege means, recognize it in himself. And then the other thing would be to recognize and understand that experiences that his wife has and that his children have are experiences that he doesn't have. He can't be the expert on those topics because he doesn't experience it. He has no idea what it feels like. And he might have an idea of what it feels like to have to know that your son, his son is experiencing racism or experiencing something, his, his son is hurting in one way or another, which is, you know, no small thing. I have children. Them suffering is a lot worse to me than me suffering. It causes me to suffer the things that they suffer. So he does empathize in that way. But to, to realize that he doesn't have all those answers. He's a problem solver. So he wants to, oh, like this is happening. Okay, well, I'm going to help you by getting you to see things differently. Or we're going to go march up to this guy's house and confront him. He's got these very simple uh, ideas of how to how to solve the situation, which doesn't involve, you know, understanding the complexity of racism and systemic racism. Everything that I've actually learned from communities of color and Black forums that has been useful in helping me to understand racism and the implications of racism, it's all come from people within those communities. And it's not been about learning so much as learning to unlearn. And so some people call it unlearning racism, which I think is nails it because everything I thought I knew, including the definition of racism, the implications of what does privilege mean, all of that came from a context of an oppressive community defining all of it and then telling me that's what this is about. 
And then later I was able to interact with people who were in oppressed communities who said that has nothing to do with what we are trying to convey. Exactly. It's interesting while we're having that discussion about allyship and coming to understand racism better as somebody who's not in an oppressed community or a marginalized community, I was looking at my notes on bleeding sky. What I wrote down was, if you aren't able to understand a problem, then your solutions won't be effective. Promoting the importance of understanding what's really going on. I assume this is about a secular worldview, but it is just as applicable to problems like systemic racism and sexism. When people don't understand the problem, they aren't able to effectively address it. This reminds me of the racism and sexism I see on the left, where people may want to understand and be an effective ally, but maybe aren't quite there yet with a full or clear grasp of the problem. Or maybe they use issues like racism and sexism as a means to their own ends, but may not realize they're doing it. Yeah, I was uh, fascinated by that interpretation of, of that song, too. I think that's another example of art being subject to interpretation, which is exactly what, what I love about it. That song was, I guess it, it was another social justice song in a certain way. It came from a, a conversation I had with my parents. In this conversation, I don't think I mentioned it, but they were both very religious people. And I think this is going back to like 2004. There was the tsunami that killed about 100,000 people. And I remember I was at breakfast with my parents and we were talking about that. And my mother made a comment. It was so judgmental. And it was just kind of this uh, religiously ignorant comment that I've heard people talk along those lines before, but she was pretty much trying to suggest that, well, those people that died, you know, they're from countries that, that don't follow Jesus and like they kind of brought it on themselves, you know, by ignoring God. It's just such an unnecessary comment and it just felt hateful and it, it disgusted me, you know, and uh, we got into an argument about it just because I was so, I was so turned off by what she had said. And I think uh, at that point, I might've even been, I might've con- still considered myself a Christian at that point too. that song kind of came from that feeling I had when when people kind of make these kind of statements. That song was a response to, I don't know if like you get this now in Texas, but you have some extreme weather happening over there and people might say something like, well, you know, it's because we tolerate way too much homosexuality in our state. So the the song was kind of a response to that kind of thing, saying uh, these natural disasters are from not following God. It was just um, a criticism of that kind of using religion to cast judgment and show like no empathy or sympathy for the suffering. When I heard the song Out of the Woodwork, I said it's solidarity, unity, support, a place to call your own. It reminds me of a seat at the table metaphor, marginalization and representation. You said you wrote this in relation to your experience with atheism, but I heard it as related to racism. Both groups are marginalized, but in different ways. What are the similarities and differences between those two intersectional situations for you? Oh, wow. Okay. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there. I specifically wrote that in relation to atheism. And because of the choice of lyrics I used, I had the, uh, the impression that anyone hearing it might hear it as a, because there's a lot of talk about coming out and coming out of the closet, coming out of the woodwork, that people might think it has something to do with homosexuality. 
deliberately wrote it lyrically so that if you're in some kind of mar marginalized group, that uh, you should be able to relate to the lyrics, no matter which one you're in. At least here in Montreal, I grew up in the church. The church here has been, at least in my experience, a very racist establishment. It's done in a way that I don't know how to explain it. It's like it, within those organizations, it's kind of accepted. The leadership is is uh, almost always white. And uh, even if they're congregations of like mainly people of color or immigrants, it's the, the leadership is usually is usually white. And when that's the case, they usually try to downplay doing anything about racism or, or to deny systemic racism. The issues that I've had like with the church that have uh, that are separate from racism, you know, I, th I find that just it's compounded within those uh, those spaces. So some marginalized groups do actually have the advantage, I guess, I would call it sometimes an advantage, sometimes a disadvantage, to not be known. So if I'm gay or lesbian, I can hide that and protect myself. But at the same time, the downside to that is that I know that all of my relationships are inauthentic. I, I feel like in the church situation, uh, yes, you, you can't hide that you um, can't hide your skin color, for example. But the type of racism that you find in the church is, is more um, insidious, I guess. Is that the word? I've never heard somebody from the pulpit say black people are deserving of being punished for being black. But I have heard them say that, that about gay people, for example. I understand what you're saying. And I think that's just in general, that's just a general fact, you know, about society. I know that my father um, used to tell me that he came uh, to Canada after World War II as a child, and he had a German accent. You know, he would kind of tell me how, like, people after World War II, they weren't friendly towards Germans. He said, you know, it, it occurred to me that I can uh, not speak, and then no one will know the, be the wiser, you know, that I'm German. But you, you can't, you just have to look at you and see that you're Black. Your skin tips people off. <laughs> You know. Right. On the one hand, you have an intersection, though, of one aspect being your atheism, which can be hidden. You can just not tell people that you're atheist and no one would ever be the wiser. Which I didn't but, for years. I, I kept it to myself. But at the same time, you also have the experience of being biracial and your Black identity is, is a bit obvious. So you have the experience of also being marginalized in a situation where you can't actually hide it from people. Yes, that's true. And to me, those are two very large distinctions because there are some groups that can keep their status hidden and there are some groups who cannot. The benefit to being able to keep it hidden is that you can stay safe in situations where it's necessary. But at the same time, you have to walk around living a lie. And that inauthentic nature of life really deteriorates people. A lot of people that are in groups where they have to live inauthentically, like trans people or gay people, suffer extreme amounts of mental illness, suffer extreme amounts of greater self-harm, because I think there is something very corrosive about having to walk around pretending to be someone that you're not and knowing that the people who love you or like you may reject you if they knew who you actually were, so that every one of those connections is not a real connection ever. Yeah, I agree with you. But even as a, vi a visible minority, you still have that. Even though uh, someone can look at your skin color and see you right away, you still have to, if you're in a predominantly white space, you still have to live kind of inauthentically because people's fragility, it usually makes them not tolerate you being your, your true authentic self. That's the fair point. So there's, a, there's an element of, um, you know, like I'd explained, you know, not feeling like I can talk about my, my experiences 
this is not just in my house, but this is just with white people in general. You know, I learned very young that they are not interested in hearing about my racist experiences to the point that they go out of their way to try to shut it down or to uh, dismiss you or deny you. You adjust to that. You know, you, you adjust to your environment. And uh, if you don't want to be having arguments every day, you just take it in the chin every day instead. Nobody around you is aware that you're taking anything on the chin because they're just completely oblivious to it all. I've actually been becoming more aware of what you just described. It's it's a it's a little bit new to me, so I don't think of it necessarily immediately. But one of the things I've been looking at more and hearing more about is the idea of Black community members being in the presence of predominantly white people. And being in those communities, they have to check themselves because of that white fragility, just as you're describing. Actually, this is a good intersecting point, I think. I hadn't thought of putting these two together. When I revealed to my folks many years ago that I wasn't a Christian, I had a big falling out. My ex-wife and my social life was pretty much completely involved in church. And when we kind of came out to everybody that we didn't believe anymore, the reaction was a lot worse than we ever anticipated. And we lost a lot of friends and our relationships with family members were broken. A lot of those have been restored since, but there was a big backlash for us just revealing the truth, something that we'd been hiding. I say we because my ex-wife, she lost her faith around the same time that I did. So we, we both kind of went through that all together and being ostracized by, by family and friends. And, and that, that was from revealing something like nobody knew that about us, but we were living inauthentically by uh, going through the motions with everybody. And then one day we decided to come clean about it. And, you know, there was a big repercussion for having done that. Now, last year, in the wake of George Floyd, I made a post online and I knew that I was saying something that was going to ruffle feathers because I have friends who are allies who would kind of check in on me. And when George Floyd happened, like that news just had a lot of us in the community were suffering because of it and we were grieving and just feeling this pain. We were checking up on each other and, you know, making sure that we're good and, and trying to lift each other up and try to show solidarity. And my friends who are allies were doing the same thing. And I noticed that not a single family member on my father's side, the white side of my family, checked in or like if, you, if I would go on their feeds, like they're, you know, all the posts are just kind of happy-go-lucky, like completely oblivious to the news. Like the George Floyd thing wasn't even a, a blip on their radar. And so I made a, you know, a post kind of calling that out, like not calling anybody out specifically, you know, and I can't remember how I phrased it anymore. I've taken it down since, but it was basically saying, uh, at times like this, you know, many of us in the Black community are grieving and are going through things. And I appreciate my friends and allies that have been checking in. And I appreciate people bringing attention to the situation and trying to highlight it. And we're interested in changing this world so that, you know, we can move forward from this kind of thing and solve this kind of this problem. And then I have, I think I phrased it like it, it, the silence is kind of deafening of, of my side of the family that was just kind of carrying on, like scarcely aware of the existence of Black people, let alone to know that we're going through something at the moment, you know? And I said, it particularly hurts when you have people that that love you and <laughs> that you love and that, you know, that you care about, that, you know, that they're just com completely blind to this aspect. The members of my uh, dad's side of the family saw that post and they got so offended. They got offended. They got so offended by what I wrote that it was, it was, it was almost like coming out as an atheist a second time, but on my dad's side of the family, they're not even Christians. It was just like, it was like another falling out with like all these family members. And it was just for me, like kind of expressing a feeling, like a true authentic feeling. I wasn't calling anybody out specifically, but I, I, I knew that what I 
was saying was going to be triggering because of that fragility. It reminds me a little bit of of the atheist issue with hell, right? And how a Christian will say you're you're so reprobate that you deserve to be tortured forever in excruciating pain for you know eternity because you are that horrible. And then when you say I think that's an awful belief, you become the problem, not yeah. their belief. So your categorization of their beliefs as cruel becomes more of an issue to them than the fact that they have a belief that the average human should be tortured forever just because that's how horrible they are. They just see it as, oh, you're being religiously intolerant. And, and that comment for them, like it was so triggering for them. And it wasn't like, oh, you're Black? I didn't know. Like, <laughs> but it was kind of like, oh, we're hurting you? and and, we didn't, and we're not even aware how, but rather than taking that as like, okay, let's look at our behavior and see, see what we can change and how we can fix that because we love you and care about you. It was, uh, it was more like, you know, well, you're just being hateful towards white people. One of my cousins actually called me up and she, she called me up. I, I, uh, she blasted me on the phone for a few minutes and then said, I'm sick and tired of all your hateful posts towards white people. And maybe you haven't even noticed, but you're actually half white. Wow. <laughs> And she, she completely missed the point of what I was trying to, to explain. I think I connected with her on a later date because um, she really had like no concept of white privilege at all. But she's a woman and she's experienced a lot of things that women experience that men don't. And I connected with her on that. I asked her to talk about experiences that she's had as a woman when she was younger, going to the clubs, men trying to grab at her, feeling safe, like walking down an alleyway like at night, yeah. all these kind of things that she can absolutely relate to and I say you know like you know when women talk about these things what tends to be the knee-jerk reaction of a lot of men that was like the thing that made her connect like it made her realize like oh we're being the men of (laughs) of race so she did she did clue into that (laughs) yeah she did but she's the only one though (laughs) Right. And and that's kind of what I'm thinking is you didn't go to her and say I'm tired of all your hate-filled anti-male rants when the racist defines racism they're going to say you have to have a, a hateful attitude. And this is what erases their culpability, right? So they can say, all of this oppression that I'm dishing out is not done with an attitude of hate, and therefore I am not a bigot. Like when that part is part of your way of life, and then someone challenges your way of life, that feels like hate. I mean, that's just having the privilege of, of not, uh, not needing to examine that in yourself because of you know, being in the dominant position. I think that's where that comes from. Yeah. My father, uh, he gives me the impression that he thinks that my attitude is hateful towards white people, even though he knows I love white people. He knows I love him. He knows I, I love my white friends and uh, and family very much. But his simplistic interpretation of the things that I say, he interprets it as radicalized hate, <laughs> you know, like kind of reverse racism kind of thing. I don't know how to get him to see it any other way, but I think that's just because if you don't examine that in yourself and you're in a society that it, like the systemic racism that exists and you're, you've come up in that and that's just like your way of life. When somebody is pointed out, it's kind of like, you know, they feel attacked for just being themselves <laughs> rather than, Hey, like there's, there's behavior patterns that are harmful to others that we're criticizing here. You know, we're not hating you. We're trying to get you to be better. I'm kind of uncomfortable discussing things in terms of in like a zero-sum game way when it comes to like human rights and human dignity i don't think anyone has to lose you know in order to bring marginalized communities up 
but they do have to lose privilege and privileges. And, and when it comes to privilege, that is kind of a zero sum because the absence of privilege is equality. So it does mean giving up privilege. If you're, if you're going to have equality like across the, the board, it would mean a loss of privilege. But that privilege can yeah. be quantified. I can actually yeah. go and look at social health metrics and see how much better I do than other people in certain areas of society. And when I'm white, it's almost all the areas of society. If I look at medical health outcomes, there's a lot of talk about socializing medicine or making it more available to everyone. Well, that might mean a longer wait time for me when I want to see a doctor. And when I look at a marginalized community, they may not be able to see a doctor at all. Will I wait three months for something that I could get done in a week if it means that this other person can then see a doctor in three months as well? Those are the kind of questions that make, you know, people who aren't overtly hateful racists, that's where they, they end up on the same page as the overtly hateful racists, the ones that will, you know, that'll uh, fight to the death not to lose a, a single bit of whatever they have, you know, for the benefit of another, you know, who openly has animosity towards uh, underprivileged communities versus yeah. those who, who believe themselves allies but aren't willing to give up like have their, their kid go to a, a compromised school or the wealth i inherited would i give that back would i donate all of that that when my parents died would i donate that to a black college what would i be willing to really give up did i deserve that inheritance when i know that heritable wealth reduces in marginalized communities especially in black communities when they're losing heritable wealth and I'm gaining it, I'm benefiting basically from my position in society and my parents' position. And this is all tied to a thread of whiteness that goes all the way back to the inception of this country. Would you give up a job opportunity so that a, a woman or a person of color can have that job? <laughs> I mean, this is what we're talking about. Would I, would I give up a university slot because I know that I have to compete with somebody who now has an education that is equivalent to mine because we didn't use unequally weighted property values to determine who gets a better ed education? When I see a person jump and say, I would give up my privilege, my first question is, do you really understand what, what you're going to be giving up? Because it's not just, it's not just a word. Like you said, do you understand what it means? Do you understand what privilege means and how it translates into real power and real wealth and real resource access? It's funny because even I, I feel that discomfort that you're talking about, but for the reason of, especially since, uh, or since the spring, when uh, the type of conversations that we've been having or you know, that I've had with white people you know, has been a lot more um, centered on, on racial inequalities and systemic racism and I feel like there's a lot more people that are hearing these terms and stuff now than, than ever before. And I'm finding some people are, are getting interested in how to become allies and for the first time showing interest in what's going on. And there's a part of me that's so scared that once they have to face that, like the question that you're asking right now, that it'll, uh, it'll just, you know, make them feel like they're at the bottom of Everest and that they're helpless to do anything about it again, and then just be discouraged and just go back to, Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? That, I mean, I think that's a fair concern. So one of the forums that I joined that was run by Black women, mm. one of the things that they talked about at the site was, if you believe in reparations and the government's not doing it, why aren't you taking personal responsibility as a white person to ensure this? Why aren't you supporting Black communities? Why aren't you supporting Black artists? Why aren't you supporting Black education opportunities? Every time I'm uncomfortable with something, it means there's a space there for me to learn. 
One of the things that I saw on your page, if you're a white person and you are my friend and you care about me, why do you maintain relationships with racists and people who harm me and who hate me? And I don't think that you wrote that post. I think it was um, something that you copied and pasted based on some of the content. I think it was something you were sharing and basically saying, I, this is a good question. It says at the bottom, now I've always had a hard time understanding why someone would keep a relationship with someone who hates the people they love. I don't get it. I personally don't understand it. But from my observation, it seems like it's very, very hard for a white person to let go of a white person who they are friends with, who they are sleeping with, who is part of their family, who engages in racism. That's actually from the uh, Black trans woman. And that post, it really resonated with me. That's kind of how I felt in my family. There's that con- that trope of uh, the the racist uncle, like mm-hmm. you know every but every white family has got that racist uncle that comes at Thanksgiving and you have to listen to his garbage. Well, I have that in my family. <laughs> you know what I mean. So I, I I felt like that since I was a child. Like you bring me to the bring me and and leave me to sit and listen to this man say this horrible, hurtful garbage. And my mom and my brother and I have to sit here and just be like, well, you know, that's uncle so and so. But, you know, so we can't teach an old dog new tricks, you know, like we just accept that about him, you know, it's part of his quirky personality, you know, and I grew up with that. My home was in a safe space being, being what it was. But what happened uh, when I shared that post, I just left my band, the, the jazz band I was telling you about earlier. I was with them for six years. Like the leader of that group, he's pretty racist. Like he never showed me hate or anything like that, you know, for the color of my skin. Um, some of his favorite musicians that he idolizes are black people. So it's, he's not, you know, he's not like, you know, come here, boy kind of thing. But he's particularly anti-Muslim, you know, even about race. Like he's got really ignorant things that he can say. I tolerated him for the whole time that I was that I was in the band, you know, and I was friends with him. Uh, and it was like during my time in that band, like I started that part of his personality started to become more and more evident there was a certain threshold, I guess, that I had of, like, in order to, you know, to get through work or to, to get through life, you just kind of tolerate a lot of racists in order to be able to, to have a social life in, uh, when you're in the context that I, I came up in. So I tolerated him for a while, but then in the last year, like his kind of, the kind of hateful things that he would start to say would get worse and more extreme and more frequent. He has a, a son now, like a young guy, and he had made a comment which was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And it was just that uh, him and his, uh, his, ex, his ex-girlfriend, they split up. And so he was leaving, moving out of her apartment or her uh, house and moving into his own house in a different neighborhood. And he was making a point to say, like, I'm so glad to move out of that neighborhood. There's so many Muslims there. I can't even take my son to the park because they're everywhere. I was at the band practice. Like I showed up before everybody else because I worked pretty close to the, uh, my office was close to where we had our practice. So I had already set up my stuff and then he was the first one to walk in and he just kind of, we were talking and this came out while we were talking and it just stunned me. And then the rest of the guys kind of walked in. I was so angry and so hurt by what he had said that I really struggled through that practice. And at the end of it, I, I kind of talked to the other guys and I just, I told them what happened like at the beginning. And I said, uh, I, I don't think I can work with this guy anymore. They were all kind of shocked. And I said, look, you know, he's got a pattern of saying these things. And I always just kind of keep my mouth shut. And, uh, and the stuff that affects me personally, you know, like I've never, you know, made a big deal about it. Him personally, I confronted him a couple of times. We've gotten into a few arguments over the years. But in general, I just kind of, my enjoyment of playing music with them was greater than, I guess, uh, 
how much it, it bothered me, like things that he was saying. But now it got to the point where like I couldn't, like I, I can't be partnered up with somebody who thinks like this anymore. It was an interesting thing. The guys in the group were kind of shocked and like, wow, like I, they all kind of said, uh, I feel really bad that, that you never even felt like your the band practice was a safe space. We never realized that it was affecting you this way and all that. I said, yeah, it, it, it always has been, but now it's, it's, it's crossed the line for me. I'm not willing to tolerate it anymore. And uh, the drummer said, wow, like, like, I should have seen this too. I'm embarrassed for not having seen it. And he decided to quit with me. He, so he showed me some solidarity, that which completely shocked me. We were working on an album, this album, and we had made quite a bit of progress on it. And now it's not going to be released because like, me and the drummer quit in the middle of it. But I was kind of trying to make a point to those guys. I said, look, I'm telling you how I feel. So when this album is done and once we've put it out, I think I'm going to step back from the band. And it was that one, the one guy in the group that was like, well, now that we know how you feel, I don't think I can comfortably go forward and like, do band practices and have this album like we need to resolve this he was like we should confront the guy right away you know about his racism and just and i said look his heart is what it is you know i said i've gotten into arguments with him in the past and he sees things the way he sees them you know like i don't want to put him in the position to say like look either you uh cut that out or he's leaving so i know what his heart is you know what i mean i gotta look at his face every time we we practice and play together it's beyond that and he's feeling more comfortable saying kind of stuff. And he's, he seems to try to get me alone. But I don't bite back. He takes it as kind of like, well, you know, you see the black guy in the group agrees with me, which I, you know, I never do. But if I don't say it, he takes it as agreement. So I said, look, we, we, I've been around that block like with him so many times that he's not going to change. And just asking him to be more polite when I'm around isn't going to fix the issue that I have. So then he's like, well, then I don't see anything else. You know, I don't, I don't see any other way around it. Then I guess it's either we... You confront him right away or like there's the door kind of thing. <laughs> not, not there's the door for, for the, the guy who. For the racist. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of struck me. I was like, wow. Okay. The drummer, he sided with me and was like, well, yeah, there's the door and I, I'll walk through it with you, which touched me. But then the other guy and him and I've had a lot of discussions. He's remarkably insightful when it comes to talking about like the kind of issues that we're, we've been talking about throughout this conversation, he can engage in those conversations passing as a, as a woke person. Conceptually, he understands a lot of it. In, in the end, him and I have had a couple of blowouts since then. And the last thing that I said to him about this was, I said, look, you know, I said, the difference is that he doesn't realize that there's anything wrong with his position. <laughs> he thinks he's in the right and you know right. you're in the wrong and yet you're wielding your privilege anyway because of the benefit you get from being in this band. And so I said, Who, what's worse? You know, like you understand all of this. Like we've had millions of conversations, you know, where you're able to understand the privilege dynamic and you're able to articulate it in a way that shows that you understand it. And now here you are showing me the door when the, the person exhibiting the bad, the, the bad behavior should be shown the door. <laughs> he was like, well, yeah, you're right. You know, you give me stuff to think about and... <laughs> kind of lifted it back. When you maintain those relationships with a person who is a racist or who is overt in their racism or is an embarrassment, somebody that you wouldn't want your Black friends around, when you're maintaining that relationship, there's a question of how seriously do you take my oppression? Exactly. There's another layer to this too. There was a period of time where I dated somebody very briefly and her name was Adama. And I asked him, I said, so when I was dating Adama, None of you had ever met her. She never, I never brought her to any of our gigs. She never came by any practice. 
you guys, I, I didn't even talk to her about you guys, you know, whereas, you know, they knew my ex-wife and then there was somebody else I dated for years that, you know, they knew her and they kind of close with her when she was in the picture. I asked him, I said, why do you think I never brought her around? And he's like, well, you know, I've always been wondered. I always wondered about that. I said, because I don't want to bring her around because he says stuff that will hurt her. And I don't want to expose her to that. And the second that I realized that I'm uncomfortable, like I don't feel comfortable to bring my girlfriend around my band mates is when it's, you know, it started to stick with me, like something's got to change, you know? And then when he made that comment about not being able to bring his little guy to the park because Muslims might be there, it was just like, ugh. Like he had wrote me an email a few weeks after I'd left saying, uh, you know, trying to show some empathy with me, but he's saying like, look, it's kind of hard for me because when I first moved to Montreal, yeah, he's rough around the edges, but he's the first guy that took me in and, you know, accepted me for who I am. And like, we have a long history and we toured with the band together. And, you know, he told me all these reasons when I saw that post about like, well, why do you keep your racist friends and family around? It's yeah, there's a lot, there's deep ties, you know what I mean? That's the status quo, you know. He's he's not going to be like, okay, well, you're uh, one of the prolific writers in this band, and you're the leader of the band. Like, you got to fix your attitude or whatever. Or there's the door. It's more uh, either you got to learn how to tolerate this, or there's the door. Yeah, and that's another uncomfortable aspect, I guess, of trying to be an ally is the idea that when you are in a privileged space that is predominantly privileged people, and there's a person that's marginalized in that community or in that group and someone is saying oppressive things and throwing their power around, as another person with power, it's your responsibility to stand up and say something about it if you take oppression seriously. Yeah. And it just seems very common that people don't, like that racist uncle, nobody throws the racist uncle in. They just kind of ask you to, you know, let it, let everything he says roll off your back. Like They, they put you in a position to uh, just tolerate it. That's just who he is. You're not going to change him. He never gets any consequences for it. So I'd like to talk a little bit about your song, Stigma, which deals with depression and the stigma of mental illness. It seems pretty straightforward, but does this come from the same place as songs like Dying Will? Um, Both of them, there are a few songs on here that go to dark places. The Youth's Prayer, Dying Will, Stigma. Where is this coming from? So yes, that definitely goes to a dark place. I should probably preface that by saying that A lot of people I've known throughout the course of my life have committed suicide. First person I knew that committed suicide was a real close friend of the family. He was my uncle's best friend. I guess I was probably about 10 or 11 when he he killed himself. It was traumatizing to me. I mean, I didn't witness it or anything, but just to know, you know, his name was Stan. One day he was there and with us and smiling and laughing. And then the next day he, he he was dead. Over the course of the years, you know, I had high school friends that had committed suicide. One of my friend's boyfriend committed suicide. And my high school best friend eventually committed suicide a little bit later in life, probably in his late 20s, which is when I wrote Stigma. people uh, pass away on me in my life too but when it's been suicide it's always been something that it would disturb me and it would, you know I'd be up at night thinking about it suicide works its way into a lot of 
as a theme a lot of my songs, which uh, <laughs> for unfortunately for my parents is probably the only other people that actually pay attention to the lyrics I write sometimes probably makes them worried like wait is he trying to communicate that he's suicidal it's usually not autobiographical when i'm talking about that so my friend uh, my high school best friend his name was paul was a very very talented person he was a very um well-spoken person and he was hilarious you know he could have been a comedian like kind of hold the stage and and with our group of friends he used to just entertain us for hours like we could be at a campfire and he would just be the only person talking making us fall over laughing in stitches, you know, for hours. You'd never know that, you know, he was struggling with any kind of depression or in the end he had schizophrenia too. You'd never know that about him, you know, that he was heading in that direction when we were teens. And in those days too, we had less awareness of it. As we got older, his behavior started to become kind of weird and he became a little bit reclusive and he started dressing kind of strange. Like by strange, I mean like, you know, where he used to have like some kind of basic sense of style he wouldn't really stand out and <laughs> then suddenly he started like hitching his pants up like kind of like Steve Urkel kind of thing and and just kind of taking on this kind of eccentric ways of dressing and saying some strange things I never realized that he was suffering with any kind of mental illness at all you know but I just found that his behavior was getting unattractive myself and a lot of our friends kind of withdrew from him a little bit went from hanging out with him every week to like every few months I'd give him a call and, and we'd go and get a bite together or something you know and and those times would be kind of awkward. And of course, what was happening with him was he was deteriorating in, in schizophrenia that was undiagnosed. I guess within a few years, he ended up in the hospital and getting diagnosed and getting prescribed some meds. But it was already like so advanced that he was struggling with a lot of his memories. He'd have like constructed memories in his, in his mind of things that never happened. But in his mind, it, it was as if it really happened. I mean, it, it must have been really challenging for him because he would be getting getting people in trouble or getting himself in trouble by just telling things that in his mind are just facts like yeah you know yesterday I saw so-and-so I saw pastor so-and-so walk into uh, this woman's house like he would say something like that you know just because he thought he saw the pastor go into you know somebody he knew his apartment and then it would be this thing you know where like they'd have to investigate like what is this pastor being you know cheating on his wife with this woman and like these kind of things were happening and it would always fall on him and it was hard for him to manage you know like reality there's a book called eden express that's an autobiographical story of mark vonnegut who is kurt vonnegut's son and Mm -hmm. mark vonnegut had schizophrenia when he submitted the manuscript to publishers one of the criticisms that he got was that they had a difficult time understanding which parts of the book were real and which of these were fantasies that were part of your mental illness he wrote back, I can't tell you. I can only tell you what my experience was. I imagine that when when you get to the, the place where you realize that this is an actual problem that you have, like, you know, I don't think everybody accepts that about themselves. And they just might think like, no, everybody's in on it. You know, <laughs> everybody's in on the big gag against me. But I think when you realize like, okay, like I'm having all these inconsistencies and all these, uh, my memory and all that. And it's because of a mental illness that I have. You know, sometimes at that point, you can be like, this is this is too difficult. Who wants to carry on, you know, un- unable to distinguish reality from, from fiction or from a delusion? So I think that's kind of what happened with him. Yeah, I didn't want to get off too much on, on the schizophrenia thing, but in 2011, he, he killed himself. And that's when I wrote Stigma. By, by the time he had killed himself, it, it had been known that he had schizophrenia for years. And I think he was taking meds and stuff, but the meds weren't, the meds didn't solve the problem with his memories, you know, like 
you know, you go to sleep at night and then wake up with a whole head full of memories of things that never happened from the, the you know, the day before, you know, and he's told me that he's you know, like, he's seen me at places and I'm like, uh, I wasn't there. And it's very confusing. When he passed away, again, every time somebody that I know had committed suicide, it was like this really heavy thing, like on my heart and my mind. And it, it's always impacted me really deeply. And even though uh, my friend, uh, Paul, him and I weren't in close touch. And, and when he killed himself, it, it might have been a, a year or something since I'd spoken to him. You know, so it wasn't like fresh, but it grieved me so much, you know, and it, it just consumed me. So I felt like I had to write a song, you know, just to, when I write music, you know, I get my feelings. It, it helps me to, to cope with them sometimes. The one song I said, let's go ahead and feature one, start to finish. We'll put the whole thing in. And you said you would like to put in Dying Will. It seems to me like a play on words against the will to live. So a desire for unity, a lack of allies, feeling fatigued, a lack of empathy, the experience of feeling non-existent, erasure. Many marginalized communities express these experiences and feelings. Where is this coming from in you? That song is just pure exasperation.
there was this massive protest and some extreme right-wing person like drove their car into the crowd and killed a woman. And Trump was silent about it for a while until finally they got him uh, saying, uh, well, you know, there was, there was good people on each side of this, you know, like referring to the white supremacists and people protesting the, the white supremacists. And his comment itself didn't shock me because that's Trump. It's, it's, it's what you expect from him. But it was what happened online after he, he had made those comments. I was just seeing like in, in my Facebook feed and my colleagues and family and friends, like I was just seeing this divide. There were people, like mainly white people that are, are more right-leaning, kind of supportive of, of what Trump had said and, and kind of trying to make the point that, oh, he was taken out of context and really defensive of it and uh, anti-protest and anti-Black Lives Matter. And, you know, then you had the other side that's like, you're, you're not you're not hearing us, you're not understanding what the issues are and, and you're, and it just made me feel so hopeless. I was just like, here we are again, this conversation's happening. Everybody's divided. It just made me feel like, uh, I think it was the first time that I, I just felt like I give up. I don't know if I actually did give up, but I felt like I don't have the energy. So the dying will was, it kind of was a play on, on words because uh, we actually did this song ironically with my my band that I left that I was telling you about almost all the songs that I wrote in that band were like social justice songs about these kind of things and it's it's funny that that guy played in a band where those lyrics were being sung while holding the like <laughs> the ideas that he has in his head and he never seemed conflicted with that so dying will was it was a play on, on words a bit because if you read the word dying will it sounds like a dude named will dying and that guy in my old band always talked about it You'd, like he would, he would be like you know, you, you talk about will as if it was a person, but I was, <laughs> I was talking, I was calling it dying will because it was like just the will to put any energy into helping people see what they're not seeing is just dying because it just feels like trying to empty the ocean, you know, one cup at a time. It's just so ingrained in so many people and just kind of the news of the day, people coming out polarized on social media, just like expose that reality, you know, that, wow, it's that bad. And myself as an individual, I feel completely helpless against it. And I guess maybe I should just go back to how I was as a kid, you know, just keeping it to myself and maybe try to associate with marginalized people and not associate as much with privileged people in my personal life. I have no choice but to go to work and deal with those colleagues. And in most of my life, I have to enter that space. But in my personal life, I was feeling like maybe I can just cut these people out so that I can have a place where I can feel safe to be myself and feel understood and, and whatnot. It is really difficult, though, to listen to someone say Trump wasn't talking about the racists. He was talking about the people who opposed the removal of oppressive symbols of racism from public spaces we all share. That that little technicality that he, he made, it works for everybody who is racist. Like they, they're like, they see that as, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it is glaringly obvious to everyone else. And it's just kind of like, well, you, you just describe something explicitly racist and you're not seeing it for what it is. What else can I do to get you to see anything at that point? So that's what that song was. And, and, and the song has no redeeming, <laughs> like, it, like I never turned it around to, to show the hope. Like I just, the song is just, it was literally just like me writing on paper, 
how depressed I feel about it all. The first person is complaining about the empathy is just kind of being drained out of society. People aren't seeing things for what they are. And then the second verse is just, I, I framed it as like being in the trenches, you know, like you're in the trenches, you have no allies, you're losing this battle. And it's just like the war is about to be lost. And it just kind of just complete hopelessness. It wasn't a song that offered any hope. <laughs> Uh, in the recording, I changed the last line of, of the song, the very last line that I sing. It's, now he has a will, to, a will to survive, and it's so persistent, but it won't let him stop the suffering. And that's probably the darkest lyric until the last line, which I didn't sing on the recording. I just repeated the, the same chorus I'd always had, because the last line, the, the original line that I wrote, but I didn't want to, I didn't want it to be like people to think of it as a warning, like, oh no, this, this guy's going to go and kill himself. But it was instead of, and he has a will to survive and it, and it's so persistent. It's now he has no will to survive, but his obligations won't let him stop the suffering. He just wants to die. He just wants, he just wants to end it all, but he's got too much depending on him for him to, to do that. It's a sentiment that I had. I wasn't really suicidal writing that lyric but the uh, the lyrical sentiment what i had was just like what's the point it's you know this at, at that point in 2017 things kind of exploded to the point where you just realize like you know what nobody nobody's an ally not even not even my family not even my friends you know like just felt like this, it felt there's nowhere to go like it would just be easier to just go to sleep and end it but then i have these beautiful children that that are here depending on me and have people that love me and care about me that'll grieve and all that. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's interesting because it reminds me of kind of what we talked about earlier, right? So when we started this conversation before we started recording, you were asking how I was doing because Texas, as we're making this recording, I'm sure this will probably air, you know, some weeks from now. But at the time we were doing this, Texas was at the tail end of winter storms. And I hadn't, I had no water at this point. My power has only been back on for like a day or so. It's horrible. And I was explaining sort of how awful it was to have this structural breakdown and to feel like you're just sort of left out and you're marginalized in this situation where you're stuck in your house and the government's not there for you and it's all come apart. I said something like, the difference is that for me, it's just going to be like a really hellish week, right? Or a week or two. Um, there's yeah. some people who are going to obviously have problems longer term or who have actually even died from this. But in a marginalized group, you're living this sort of situation of marginalization and disenfranchisement every single day. And it's nonstop. And there's a million different reminders, whether it's a headline or some offhand things someone says there's or whether it's a statue in a park that someone else finds valuable that just happens to be a symbol of white power and oppression that you just have to see over and over again and this idea of not really recognizing that of people like me who are in privilege who don't understand what it is to have the constant reminder that I am the disempowered I am the disenfranchised I am the marginalized I am the oppressed class and when you have that held over you in a million different ways, a million times a day, day in and day out with no stopping, it's not just a week, it's forever. And I don't know that people who don't experience that really understand the magnitude of it. I don't think they take it seriously. And I've definitely had people on my wall when I will talk about something being lethal, marginalization being lethal, they will 
consider that to be hyperbolic or exaggerating. And I've had sometimes people come on and actually say that, oh, now you're you know being dramatic or whatever. It's like, okay, you don't understand. You really don't get it. I think when I started to realize the level of self-defense that is what marginalization requires of people, it's like you're saying, what do you do? Do you lay down and die or do you just wish you could lay down and die, but know that you have to wake up tomorrow and do this all over again? Yeah, that's... I mean, that's pretty much what the last line of that song was supposed to say, or <laughs> what, what the purpose of it was. But I decided against the uttering it or changing the last line. The high rates of self-harm and suicide in some marginalized communities, I think, are a testament to what that does to people, what that does to a human being, to be consistently reminded of your disempowered position in society. Yes, I mean, that's exactly what I was trying to communicate in that song but I didn't want people worrying about me specifically because I'm not at risk of killing myself. Yeah. And you can't even open your mouth about it because as you say, once you do the dominant culture who does not understand and who is invested in not understanding slaps it down and says, you're being ridiculous. You've expressed the same thing, but I've distanced myself a bit from the atheist community for those same reasons. Like you said, when you, when you speak about it as being, what did you say? uh, Lethal or. Yeah, I I think it is lethal. And people automatically jump to, oh, that you're using hyperbole there. You know, like it's not insults or what, because people see it as like, oh, well, I've been called names, you know, people made up names for me when I was a kid or whatever. And they think of it in terms of that. They don't look at it as a death by a million cuts kind of thing. We talked about that in the conversation with Rob Poole, the difference between an insult to a person of privilege versus a person of privilege using something like a slur in order to reiterate their power position. It's not the same thing. It has an entirely different dynamic. And the final song I want to talk about is Two Tones Lament. I had in my notes just one word, acceptance. Can you tell me where that song comes from? Two Tones Lament is autobiographical. It's a story about how my ex-wife and I got together as an incompatible couple and had kids and then, you know, we're incompatible and split up. It's basically a a story of just kind of what our relationship was. wife when I was uh, I think it was 18 or 19 and I was in the band and we went and played out played a show out in the city that she lived in she was in lived in uh, Lenoxville Quebec which is about a two-hour drive away from Montreal the drummer for my band lived there I can't remember exactly how I got involved with them with him with his band because like they're from Sherbrooke Quebec Lenoxville Quebec which was was far but somehow they called me out and I, I ended up playing a couple of shows with them and then I ended up just being joining the band as a member even though I lived in a different city and uh, we went and played a show there. My drummer had a, a woman that he was interested in. It was his high school sweetheart, like years before that. He wanted to kind of reconnect with her. And she was friends with my ex-wife. She was going to come with her. And he asked me if I can kind of spend some time with the person who ended up being my wife while he chats up 
his ex-girlfriend. So I did, and her and I, we connected and we played some pool after our gig. And, you know, we, we kind of connected all right. And it turns out that I knew her brother because they used to live in Montreal years ago. Her brother was in my youth group. There was like a, there was a bit of a connection there, which for me in those days, as a Christian, I kind of felt like, huh, there's some significance there, you know? When I came home from that gig, my mother asked me, she's like, oh, so how was, how was Lennoxville? Good. And she goes, so how is, uh, how is Mandy, who's, who's my ex-wife? I was, com- I was taken aback. I'm like, why did you ask me about her? Like, how did you know that I met somebody named Mandy at that? And she's like, oh, I know, like, uh, you know, you knew her brother. And I know that they moved out there a few years ago. And so they knew from the church context, my, my mother already knew that that family moved there. But it, I didn't know all of this for some reason. So when she, she kind of directly was like, well, you know, I figure she's the one that's your age. So, you know, I figured that she, you went and played a gig out there. She'd probably be there. And, and I don't know if she was being honest. Like she must have found out, got some news about who I saw or whatever, somehow. I don't know. But to me, I took that as another like, wait, first of all, there's this connection. Like I meet this person and we're chatting and turns out I know her brother from another city. And then I come home and then my mom's asking me specifically about her. All of this just seems like too orchestrated. Like God is trying to tell me something. So I was just like, okay, well, you know, whatever. But I came back, you know, her and I never exchanged phone numbers or anything. So I had no way of, of uh, reaching her. But what she started doing was asking around, asked her brother and asked uh, my, my old drummer uh, for my email address. So eventually she got it. And like a couple of months after we had met, she wrote me, uh, wrote me a message. And we started chatting with that. And then we got together. We we're both like from very religious Christian backgrounds. So, and we shared that and she, she shared with me how, how sincere she was about Jesus. And, you know, so we, we kind of connected and we, we kind of became like pen pals on it. She expressed that she kind of, she was interested in me and she liked me and, you know, we started talking more and then she had a chance to come and visit Montreal one time, you know, when she came, like we hung out and then a few times I, I had to go back to her town to, to do some gigs. So we met, we met up when, uh, when I went to go visit over there and then we became, uh, you know, we started dating and, and we started this long distance relationship as evangelical christians she was uh, uh when when we were dating she was a virgin and uh it was very important for her to to um save herself for marriage so for the whole time that we dated which was about two years before we got married we didn't have sex you know because our christian values I, I wasn't a virgin at that point but i had you know it was important to me to try to follow the follow the rules even though i'd broken them in the past like i, I still wanted to keep trying to follow them you know so it kind of worked out with her. We had we had this long distance relationship right up until the day that we got married. And that's the day that we got married is the day that she moved into my apartment. And doing it that way is a huge mistake because <laughs> you have no idea what you're going to get. And all of a sudden you're, you're in close quarters with somebody that you don't even know. And I, I say I didn't know her because our relationship was always, uh, we didn't see each other for like a month or two. And then we'd have like a very brief weekend of just bliss because we'd missed each other so much. So when we saw each other, it was just like this huge relief, just wonderful. You know, that never gave us a chance to really know each other, like who we actually were and see each other like in our regular, when we're just feeling normal and blah and not, you know what I mean? Yes, I do know what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) When we moved in together, the nightmares kind of began like on day one, you know, like I was young, I was immature. She was young and immature too, but I had already established my home and my apartment and it was already difficult for me to just share the space with somebody else when I was already used to just having my own pad. In any case, you know, it, it turned out that her and I weren't very compatible as a couple, but we were both Bible-believing Christians and, and you know, we had made a decision and we felt like we just got to keep on trying to be more like Jesus to make this relationship work. We coexisted 
fine together, but we didn't have a really good relationship. We stayed together a long time and we had kids together, but we weren't right for each other. We spent a lot of our, our relationship just kind of brushing that fact under the carpet and trying to make it work. We're just trying to ignore <laughs> that fact, you know? And then throughout that, like over the, after we got married over the next couple of years, like I think I was probably already struggling with my faith by the time we got married, but I lost it completely over the next couple of years. That might've had an influence on her because I was asking her questions because she was a very faithful person. When I was losing my faith, I was kind of like grasping at straws. I was like, help me, you know, you got to, how is this real to you? Like, you got to help me understand, help me to grab what you have, because I feel like it's just fading, you know, that had the effect of causing her to question things that she'd never questioned before. And then it just like unraveled like instantly for her. So then we were both like kind of stuck. We ended up, you know, discovering, realizing like we're atheists and everybody that we know and love are Christians. (laughs) And uh, when we came out with that, we had this huge, this huge falling out with everybody, our, our Christian friends. Her and I were both youth leaders at the church that we were at. Our whole social life just completely fell apart, with the, the exception of a couple of true friends that stuck with us through it all. Once we, we went through that kind of thing together, and so that bonded us a little bit. But it also, once we weren't Christians anymore, the idea of splitting up wasn't taboo. It wasn't like we were, we were going to um, anger God about it, you know. So, yeah, we split up. And that that's pretty much what that song was. It was just a description of all of that. I just want to say thank you again for joining me and talking about your life experiences. I think that these are topics that a lot of people are dealing with, and it's good to get them aired. Thanks a lot, Tracy. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this kind of stuff. I don't usually talk about this stuff, but I, I always put them in my songs. <laughs> all right. Yeah. And I love your songs. And by the way, there will be links to the songs um, in the description for folks that are listening. So thanks again, Joseph. Great. Thank you. And uh, well, best of luck with uh, everything that's happening in Texas. I hope things <laughs> kind of get get back on track. Like, sooner yeah, by the later. time this airs, it's going to be a distant, unhappy memory. <laughs> yes, I hope so. <laughs> all right. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Take care. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.